is not plan B. We talked about that a little bit on Wednesday night, didn't we? The Gospel is the only plan. It's God's eternal purpose, which He carried about in Christ Jesus. God didn't create the world, put a tree in the garden, and go, "Uh uh-oh, they sinned, now what? In fact, God putting the tree in the garden, Adam and Eve sinning, was all a part of the sovereign, eternal plan of God, so that by His sovereign grace, He could redeem His people through the cross and bring glory to His own name. And now we, again, Paul's emphasized this theme, that we have become fellow partakers with the people of God. We have been grafted in. He says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. We are grafted in to the covenant promises of God. We become the people of God by virtue of our union with Christ. And we rejoice in that great salvation. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Let's thank Him for all that we've heard this morning, and then we'll continue to study His Word together. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its truth. We thank You for its clarity, its authority, its power, its efficacy to do what it was set out to accomplish. Your Word is the means by which You save us, by which You regenerate us, by which You sanctify us and make us holy, by which You encourage us and warn us and preserve us, and You will eventually lead us to glory. And Your Word tells us all about that. All about that which is stored up for us who love the Savior. We thank You, Lord, that You have saved us, that You have caused us to become fellow members of the, of the saints, fellow members of one body, joint heirs with Christ, grafted into the covenant promises of God that we have, as Your church, become the Israel of God, the people of God. And we thank You for that. We thank You for Your eternal purpose that You carried out in Christ Jesus, that You chose us before the world began, You predestined us for adoption of sons, for glory, conformity to Christ. All of that was done in your own mind and in your own heart and your own purpose before the universe was ever spoken into existence. And Lord, we thank You for it all. And now we pray, Father, we bow our knees before You, the Father of Heaven, and we pray that You would, for each of us this morning, according to the riches of Your glory, calls us to be strengthened with power through Your Spirit dwelling in our inner man. That You would empower us to walk in Your Word. Empower us to persevere through the difficulties of life and the trials of life. That You would empower us to walk as Your people. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That He would reign supreme in our affections, in our emotions, in our devotion, that Christ would reign supreme as Lord. That we would be grounded and rooted in love, that we might know what is the length and height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we might be built up to the fullness of God. We pray that You would do these things, and we pray all of these things in the name of Your Son. And so now to You be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore, we pray. Amen.
All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to begin a new study this morning. Very, very exciting time for us in the life of our church when we begin a new study. After 11 months, 11 long months of journeying through 1 John, we come to embark on a new journey starting this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, that's in between 1 and 2 Timothy and Philemon. Three little chapters, so don't turn too fast, you might miss it. Titus chapter 1. I am, as you already know, committed to the Bible, to the Word of God, to Holy Scripture. In fact, what goes on in many pulpits today, I don't even understand. I don't, I don't even know where these guys get their stories. I don't know where they get their antidotes. I don't know where they get their illustrations. I'm not clever enough to have all of that. Nor do I have enough confidence in my own ingenuity to try and pull a rabbit out of my hat every week in the pulpit. I don't know what happens in most pulpits. What I do know is the Word of God has more wisdom than I have. The Word of God has infinite, infinitely more wisdom than any pastor could ever have. And so I would be a fool to get up and tell you stories when I could just give you the Word of God. There was a meme on Facebook quite a while ago. And in the meme... It said at the top, I have 66 ideas for a new sermon series. And it showed the table of contents in the Bible. 66 ideas for a sermon series. I don't know why you would need to come up with your own. God has given you 66 sufficient books to preach from. And so that's my commitment. I believe what Augustine said is true. Where the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. I've told you before, Martin Luther's quote is the heart of my ministry. I did nothing, the Word did it all. The Word did it all. That's my philosophy of ministry. Any effective ministry is going to be built upon the Word of God. So that's my commitment. The Bible. I'm committed to expository preaching. That is, preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and even word by word. And in doing so, allowing God Himself, the Lord of the church, to speak to His church through His Word. And so that's my philosophy of ministry. This morning is no exception. And so the plan today is to move on to another book, the book of Titus. Let me start by giving you my reasoning for choosing this particular book. Out of all of the books that I could have chosen, 66 to be specific, why did I choose this one? Why Titus? Why Titus? Well, first of all, because of the length of the book. The length of the book. Many of you already know that my family and I are planning to transition out and move back to Tennessee soon. And we're in the process of helping search for the next pastor. So I don't know how much longer I'll be here. So whatever book I chose next, it had to be short enough to uh, get through it in a reasonable amount of time. And as you know with me, five chapters took 11 months, so you can only imagine how long three chapters could take. Cut, cut that in half. But I think that I can get through the book in about three to four months. Titus kind of fits that qualification. About three to four months. At least that's the idea, that's theoretical, that's on paper. Of course, I didn't expect to go 11 months in First John, so you get the point. But we'll see how long it takes. But about three to four months, ideally. And you know, sometimes on a long drive, you've got to pull over, right? You've got to pull over, let the kids out the car, they've got to rest, you've got to rest, and... And I know all about that. And so after a long drive of 1 John, I think it's time to take a shorter ride now through the book of Titus. So that's the first reason, because of the length of the book. 
The second reason I chose this book is because of the nature of the book. The nature of the book. Titus is one of three books, along with First and Second Timothy, deemed the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles. And that name has been ascribed to these three books because they were written to men who were serving as pastors, at least for a time, in particular churches. And it certainly deals with pastoral ministry, and even more than that, it deals with how a local church is to function. It deals with what a church is to be and what a church is to do. And since we are in the midst of a transition searching for the next pastor, I figured that Titus would help us towards that end. Titus would serve as well. As a church, we want to know what to look for in the next pastor. As a church, we need to know how we need to function, what we need to be as a church, what we need to do as a church. And so Titus... I think will really help us as we think through those issues. So all of that is the reason I chose the book of Titus. And for this morning, what I basically want to do is just introduce the book to you. I just want to give you a brief introduction. And then next week we'll dive into the first passage, verses 1 through 4. But for this morning, just a general introduction and overview of the book of Titus. We have a bit of a busy day ahead of us with a fellowship meal and a business meeting. And since you patiently endure hour-long sermons every Lord's Day so graciously, I thought, you know what, these people deserve a shorter sermon this morning. So this will probably be a little shorter than normal. I can't guarantee you that, but it should be a little shorter than normal. Uh, You've deserved it. You've earned it. So here you go. Here's your short sermon for the year. So take it or leave it. Uh, This morning, though, will be a little different. It will be more like a classroom, probably, more like a Bible study than a sermon, Uh, more data that I'm going to throw at you and and general information about a book, an overview of a book, and it should be a little shorter than most messages, so that's the plan. For this morning, I want to give you five matters of introduction. I want to consider five matters of introduction, as I always do when we begin a new study. Five matters of introduction that will guide us as we work our way through the epistle in the next several months. That will give us some helpful historical context as we seek to interpret the passages in the future. So I want to consider the author, the place and date of writing, the recipient, the theme slash purpose, and the outline. The author, the recipient, the place and date of writing, theme, and the outline. So first of all then, let's consider the author. The author. Who wrote the book of Titus? It's not Titus, by the way. Some of our books we have like that. We have Matthew, and we know who wrote Matthew. It's in the name. Mark, we know who wrote Mark. It's in the name. Same thing with John, etc. We just studied 1 John. Who wrote that? John. John. But Titus is a little different. Titus was not written by Titus. It was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. This is one of the Pauline epistles. And we know that from two sources. The external evidence and the internal evidence. The external and the internal. Anytime you're studying a book and you want to figure out who wrote it, that's how we do it. External evidence and internal evidence. So first of all, there's the internal evidence of the epistle itself. Look at the very first verse. Titus 1.1 Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The author's pretty clear about who he is. It is the Apostle Paul. 
we have then the claim of the author himself that he is Paul. But not only do we have the internal evidence, we also have the external evidence of church history. Church history. For 18 or 19 centuries, the church was in unanimous agreement that the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote the book of Titus, along with the other pastoral epistles. Early church fathers such as Eusebius and Irenaeus all affirmed, um, along with many others, that Paul was the author. It wasn't until higher criticism in the 18th, 19th century and the Enlightenment and all that stuff, it wasn't until then that any scholar really doubted the Pauline authorship of the book of Titus. So we have then no reason to doubt the claims of early church history. We obviously have no reason to doubt the claims of the letter itself because it's written by God and therefore we can have confidence that the author is the Apostle Paul. Paul is a very familiar character to us. We know him well, I trust. He needs no introduction to us. Outside of our Lord Himself, I don't think any man in church history has stood as tall as the Apostle Paul. He is a giant in church history, towering over us with His wisdom. He wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, 14 if you attribute Hebrews to Him. I do not, but some do. So at least 13 letters of the New Testament. You can do the math on that. There's 27 books. He wrote 13. That's basically half of the New Testament. He was the one responsible for carrying the Gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He said himself, I labored more than all of them, not I, but the grace of God in me, in 1 Corinthians 15. No one impacted the first century for Christ more than the Apostle Paul. He is a hero in the faith for me. He was a Hebrew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He was a Roman citizen and as a Roman citizen, he spoke both Hebrew and Greek. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. There's a myth that his name was changed. His name was not changed. He's called Saul even after he's converted until chapter 13 of Acts. Paul is just his Greek name. He was, as we know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a violent persecutor of the church. He's the one standing there over Stephen in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen He's the one arresting men and women in the early church, casting them into prison. No one was more zealous than the Apostle Paul when it came to stamping out Christianity in the first century. And as is always the case, those who seek to stamp it out the way, the Christian faith, always fail, don't they? But Paul's failure was really more of a success because he became what he was trying to end. He became one of those he sought to kill. He became a Christian on the road to Damascus. He encountered the risen Lord. And in seeing His glory, everything changed. Thus, Saul of Tarsus becomes in our hearts, Paul, the Apostle. The greatest persecutor the church had seen in the first century became the greatest missionary the church perhaps has ever seen. And he is a very fitting author for a pastoral epistle because Paul was himself a pastor. Paul was himself a pastor. He shepherded a plethora of churches. We think of the churches of Galatia. We think of the Corinthian church. We think of the church of Antioch. All of these churches Paul was responsible for in his oversight of those particular congregations. You can read, by the way, his spiritual autobiography in Philippians 3. 
You can read about His conversion in Acts chapter 9. You can read about His suffering in the ministry in 2 Corinthians 11 and all of the difficulties He endured. He becomes, for a pastor such as myself, a source of comfort and encouragement and a wonderful model to imitate. But that's the author, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Of course, Paul is only the human author. Every book of the Bible has two authors. Did you know that? Every book of the Bible has two authors, a human author and a divine author. We call it the doctrine of dual authorship. It was written by men, but inspired by God. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author of the book of Titus. These are not merely the words of men, but they are the words of God, and we should receive them as such. Why should we spend the next several months digging into the book of Titus? Why should we labor literally over every word of the book? Because they are the words of God. The words of God to us. Now that brings us to a second matter of introduction to be considered this morning. And that is the place and date of writing. The place and date of writing. When did Paul write Titus? And from where did he write Titus? When and where? To answer those questions, we're going to have to consider some of the historical context behind the book of Titus and of the New Testament in general. It becomes clear from verse 5 of chapter 1 that Paul had left Titus in Crete to finish the ministry that they had begun there. Verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So clearly Paul had left Titus there in Crete. Titus was to complete the work. He was there now by himself. Paul had left. Crete, by the way, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the largest of all the Greek islands. It's south of Greece. It's uh, populated today with over 600,000 inhabitants. It's a very big island. Paul's only trip to Crete, it recorded in the Bible, in the book of Acts, was before uh, he was released from his first imprisonment. It was during his first imprisonment. It's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 27. Paul was a prisoner being transported to Rome, and he traveled through Crete for a short time. And since his only trip to Crete in the book of Acts was as a prisoner with very little freedom, he was not able to conduct any sort of evangelistic or missionary work there during that time. So he had to write the letter after his first Roman imprisonment. That would mean that Titus was written after the historical events recorded in the book of Acts. That's why Acts never records Paul's missionary work on the island of Crete, because it took place after Acts was already written. Acts ends at the end of chapter 28 with Paul on house arrest in Rome around the year 61 or 62 AD. So Paul had to write the book of Titus at some point after that. Of course, he had to write the letter before his second Roman imprisonment because we know he didn't make it out of there. Paul was beheaded in Rome during his second imprisonment. That took place around 65 to 67 AD. So he wrote the letter then in between those two Roman imprisonments which would put the date sometime in between 62 to 65 A.D. This would make, by the way, Titus the second to last letter that Paul ever wrote. The last letter was 2 Timothy. 
This is the second to last letter that the great apostle ever wrote. And it makes the letter all the more monumental for us. Now the question is, from where did he write the letter? We know roughly when he wrote it, but now from where did he write it? And although we can't really know that with absolute certainty, we do have a clue given to us in chapter 3. Go to chapter 3 for a minute. Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 12. Titus chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Why did Paul want Titus to come to Nicopolis? Because that's probably where Paul was at when he wrote the letter. He was in Nicopolis. Back to chapter 1 now. So here's the scene. Paul is arrested. He becomes a Roman prisoner. He's released in 62 AD. After he's released, him and Titus at some point travel to the island of Crete, do some ministry there. The work isn't finished. Paul's ready to leave. He leaves Titus on the island of Crete, travels eventually to Nicopolis, and from Nicopolis, he writes the letter back to Titus. So Paul wrote it then around 62 to 65 AD from Nicopolis. Now that brings us then to a third matter of introduction, and that is the recipient. The recipient. To whom did Paul write this letter? We've already mentioned his name. In fact, the letter is named after him. But the answer is given in chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. This letter was written to Titus. Now, who is Titus? Perhaps he's one of the New Testament figures you know the least about. We hear a lot about John and Paul and Peter, but not a lot about, and even a lot about Timothy. But you don't really hear a lot about Titus. Who is Titus? Well, obviously, he was one of Paul's companions, one of Paul's friends, a spiritual child to Paul, a, a spiritual child to him. Paul was essentially his mentor. It's also possible that Titus was converted under Paul's ministry. Perhaps that's why he refers to him as my true child. Titus is mentioned a total of 13 times in the New Testament, but oddly enough, he's never mentioned in the book of Acts, not even once. Very odd occurrence. In fact, much of what we know about Titus actually comes from the book of Titus, the book of Galatians, and 2 Corinthians. And by consulting some of the passages that mention his name, we can kind of piece together a picture of this man, this man, Titus. So go with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, Paul is seeking to substantiate his apostolic authority. He's defending his apostleship and his gospel against the false teachers. And one proof he gives of the truthfulness of his gospel is the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. In Acts chapter 15, a group of heretics came to Antioch where Paul was currently ministering. And they were teaching the Gentile believers there that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. They were adding works to the gospel. 
law to grace, ceremony and ritual to faith. And we know Paul doesn't take that very well, does he? So Paul had great dispute with them, but then he traveled up to Jerusalem to consult the apostles on the matter. And we call that council the Jerusalem Council. And Acts chapter 15 records that in detail, but Galatians 2 also gives us some insight on that council, as well as some insight on the man Titus. So Galatians 2, starting in verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, there he is, along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So what do we learn about Titus from this passage? Well, we learn that he was a Greek, not a Jew. He was circumcised, uncircumcised. And he was there, present with Paul at the Jerusalem council. As Paul goes to such a monumental council, such an important time of the church's history, one of the guys he thinks, I need to take with me, Titus. I need to bring Titus with me. That probably tells us something about his level of trust in Titus. So even though he's not recorded in Acts 15, we know he was there. He was there. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's to the left. One book to the left. Here in 2 Corinthians, Titus is mentioned nine times. Out of the 13 times he's mentioned in the New Testament, nine of them come right here in 2 Corinthians. And we don't need to look at all of those references, but just a few of them will help us get a good picture of this man. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted in you, as He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for Me, so that I rejoiced even more. In other words, Paul sent Titus to Corinth, to the Corinthian church. And we know a little bit about the Corinthian church, don't we? That church was pretty, pretty bad shape. The Corinthian church makes just about any church look like a group of angels and saints by way of comparison. We know they were plagued with immorality in the church, division in the church, an abuse of spiritual gifts and the Lord's Supper, a denial of the resurrection. Some of them had even come to question Paul's apostolic authority. This was a very troubled church. And who did Paul send to the Corinthian church in order to straighten things up? Titus. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a situation like this, I want the best of men. If someone's going to go into this church and fix this church, I want the best of men. Titus is the best of men. He went and under his ministry there, apparently the Corinthians had displayed repentance. They had mourned They had been zealously now longing for Paul. They had renewed their allegiance for the true apostle and the true gospel. And Titus was able to give that report and bring joy to Paul's heart. 
Now go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 23. In chapter 8, verse 23, Paul describes Titus in his own words. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. That was Paul's description of this man. My partner, true companion, fellow worker, a trustworthy associate. One that Paul could send as a delegate representing himself in other places. We all need companions like that, don't we? We should all seek to be companions like that for others. Those who are trustworthy and reliable. In that sense then, Titus becomes a good example for us. Faithful companion. Now one more text in 2 Corinthians will prove his faithfulness. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 18. 12-18. I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Here is a faithful brother. Trustworthy companion. One who loved the church. Who imitated Paul. One who took advantage of no one. One who could be trusted. Trusted to go into the most difficult of situations and faithfully serve the Lord and His church for His glory. That's the man. Back to Titus 1 now. That's our man. That's the recipient. Titus. The final word in the New Testament on Titus is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. You don't need to turn there. 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter. He's at the very end of his life. He knows that the time of his departure had drawn near. He was soon to be poured out like a drink offering, soon to give his life as a martyr for Christ. And at the very end of the letter, there are a few men on his mind, and one of them is Titus. There Paul says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. In contrast to Demas, Paul's friend who would later desert him, Titus was there till the end. Titus was faithful until the end. And we find that he's on a new mission at the end to Dalmatia. The baton was passed on to the next generation in Titus. He's there at the very end of Paul's life continuing the work. Though his mentor is about to die for Christ, Titus is still faithful up until the end. That's a man I hope I'm like. I hope I'm faithful to the end like Titus. Well, that's the recipient. Paul wrote the letter to Titus. But ultimately, we know the Holy Spirit meant this letter for all believers and all churches throughout all time. And so, as you'll find out in the months ahead, there, is many, there are many, many practical truths for us here. Much to glean from this letter for our own lives. And I'm excited about diving in with you. But that brings us now to number four. The purpose and theme. The purpose and theme. Why did Paul write this letter? 
What is it about? What's its theme? Well, there are several themes in the book of Titus that resurface over and over again. One is the organization of the local church. The organization of the local church. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you had set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus was left on the island of Crete to finish the work. To finish the work, and that involved organizing the church and appointing elders. Another theme in the book of Titus is the need for sound doctrine and the refutation of false teachers. The relationship between sound doctrine and dealing with false teachers. Look at verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. There were false teachers on the island of Crete. They needed to be refuted and they needed to be silenced. If you back up just a bit to verse 9, as Paul's giving qualifications for elders, look at one of them. The elder has to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, he has to be sound doctrinally. Why? So that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is a clear theme in the book of Titus. We need sound doctrine so that we can refute errorists who come against the truth, who oppose the truth. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. There's a need for sound doctrine. If the church is going to be healthy, it's got to have sound doctrine. In fact, in verse 4, or verse 1, he says the knowledge of the truth is that which is according to godliness. Sound doctrine builds the church. Sound doctrine grows the Christian. And sound doctrine protects from error. We need sound doctrine. And of course, sound doctrine centers on the gospel message, doesn't it? The message about the person and work of Christ. And in Titus, there are two passages that are filled with glorious gospel truth. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And we'll look at those in the months ahead. But themes like redemption and atonement and salvation by grace and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, all of those are themes that will be dealt with in those particular texts. Another major theme in Titus is the necessity of good deeds with a view to effective evangelism. Or the relationship between good deeds and effective evangelism. For instance, if you go to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as Paul instructs slaves to be submissive to their masters, notice what the motive is. Verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's why. Good behavior 
will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It will beautify the Gospel. Your life will either bring reproach upon the Gospel or it will commend the Gospel. It will either bring reproach or commendation. Which, which one is your life bringing to the Gospel? We should be able to say with Paul, I do all things for the sake of the Gospel. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Their wives are to be submissive to their husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. That is what is at stake. That is why when you get up on Monday morning and go to work as a Christian, you should do it with all your might. Because the Word of God is at stake. We do not, in the words of one Puritan, we do not want to build up with our life what we tear down with our mouth. Or, sorry, we don't want to build up with our mouth what we tear down with our life. We don't want to say, I love Christ. I'm a Christian. Jesus is glorious. The Gospel is powerful to save. And then our life destroy that house that we've built up. Everything we do must be done for the sake of the Gospel. That's an emphasis in Titus. If you go to chapter 2, verse 14, that theme is seen again. There he speaks of Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus died to save you from your lawless deeds and to make you zealous for good deeds. He died for your salvation and your sanctification. Zealous for good deeds. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Good deeds. Luther said, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbor does. They're good and profitable for men. Same thing in verse 14 of chapter 3. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Clearly then, this is a major emphasis in Titus. The need for good deeds that make for effective evangelism, that commend the Gospel. Sound doctrine and good deeds go together in Paul's theology. There's no false dichotomy with Paul. There's no either or. Perhaps chapter 2, verse 7 makes that as clear as any verse in Titus. Paul tells Titus, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine. That's what we need. We need to be well off morally and doctrinally. We need to conform to Christ morally and theologically. You think doctrine is important to Paul? You think the sentiment, I don't need Jesus, I don't need theology, just give me Jesus, you think Paul would have accepted that? I don't think so. Another clear theme in Titus is that Titus was to instruct the churches. He was to instruct them. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then after that, he instructs the various members of the church in verses 2 through 10. The old men, the young men, the old women, young women, slaves, etc. Go to verse 15 of chapter 2. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
Titus was to teach and instruct the church authoritatively. That was his duty. That was his responsibility. So putting this all together then, we could say this about the purpose of Titus. We could say this. The purpose of Titus is to inform Titus on how to organize and instruct the local church and deal with false teachers. How to organize and instruct the local church and deal with false teachers. The theme we could sum up in one sentence. One sentence. The organization, doctrine, and conduct of a healthy evangelistic church. The organization, doctrine, and conduct of a healthy evangelistic church. MacArthur says the purpose of the letter is to build strong churches that would be effective in evangelism. Again, MacArthur says, the ultimate purpose of the letter was to prepare the church for more effective witness on the island of Crete. Daniel Aiken, another writer, would agree. He says, we could consider the theme to be an apostolic manual for church planting. Here is a blueprint, Aiken says, for planting and building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. That's Titus. I don't know about you, but I want Christ the King Baptist Church to be a church like that. A church that is growing and thriving for the glory of God. A church that is evangelistic. A church that honors God. To be that kind of church, we need the right organization, the right doctrine, and the right conduct among both the leaders and the members. And that's what Titus teaches us. That's what makes Titus so important to us. That is why Titus is so essential for Christ as King Baptist Church. Now, with all of that said, we come to a fifth and final matter of introduction, very brief here, and that is the outline. The outline. Let me give you a brief outline of Titus. You should have received in a, your copy of your bulletin a handout of the outline of the book. You can follow along with me if you'd like. You could also have that for future reference and study. Just to give you a little outline here. First, Roman numeral 1, the salutation. The salutation. We see that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's comprised of the author, the recipient, and the benediction. Roman numeral 2, organizing the church. Organizing the church. In 1, 5 through 16, appoint elders and refute false teachers. Thirdly, instructing the church. Instructing the church in 2, 1 through 3, 11. That involves a word to various members, a word about saving grace, a word about good deeds, and a word about church discipline. Finally, you have closing remarks in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, which consist in an exhortation to come, an exhortation to help, and an exhortation to greet. That, my friends, is Titus in a nutshell. That's what we have to look forward to for the next several months. And I hope you're as excited as I am about digging deep into this book and seeing what the Lord will do through this book in our lives and in our church for our good and for His glory. So next week, verses 1 through 4. We begin the new journey next week. You don't want to miss it. Be here, be there, or be square. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. 
and its truthfulness to us. We thank You that You've preserved it for us. You've kept it pure in all ages, from the corruption of the flesh, from the malice of Satan, from the weakness of men. Yet Your Word has stood the test of time. And that's why we give our all to study this book. There have been men throughout the history of the church who have given their lives in hopes that this book would be preserved. Men who have died for the Word of God. Lord, we certainly owe it our due attention. We owe it our study. We owe it our devotion. Because our devotion is to You. And we do believe that when Your Word speaks, You Yourself speak. And so here we are as a church, ready and willing to listen and to obey what You tell us to do. So thank You for speaking to us this morning in the Scripture. Bless the rest of our service and our time together for the glory of Your own name. Amen.